Stay tuned now for Byline Mendocino. Welcome to Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. Byline Mendocino is a bi-weekly local media roundtable <clears throat> focusing on local news and newsmakers. Today's roundtable includes two breaking news reporters, the Ukiah Daily Journal's Justine Fredrickson and Colin Atagi of the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. Both of them have brought us stories this week about immediate events as they unfold from the cash fire in Lake County to the overflowing hospital beds and dramatic upsurge in Delta variant deaths here in Ukiah. In the second half of the show, as part of my ongoing exploration of forest management and wildfire, I'll talk with Chad T. Hansen. Chad is a wildfire scientist who argues that our current regime of thinning, fire breaks, and post-fire logging are not stopping catastrophic fires, but actually making them worse. He's part of a growing group of researchers and advocates who are calling for a new relationship with wildfire, one that focuses on saving homes and lives and not removing carbon from the backcountry. But first, reporter Colin Atagi is a breaking news reporter for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat who joined the North Bay paper in May of this year. His beat includes fires, shootings, crashes, politics, and of course the pandemic. Last week, when the cash fire broke out in Lower Lake, Colin reported from the scene and has since made several trips back to follow up with the aftermath. Welcome, Colin. It's great to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. And Justine Fredrickson is the staff reporter for the Ukiah Daily Journal. She covers local news and politics in the Ukiah Valley. This week, she's documented the dire situation at the Ukiah Hospital due to the Delta variant of the coronavirus. And she's also covered the numbers of mail-in ballots that have been returned so far in the governor's recall election. She's also an avid explorer of local places and travels, which she shares on her Twitter feed for the benefit of those of us who follow her. <laughs> it's great to have you here, Justine. It. Thank you. Thanks. And you are live in the studio, double masked. Yes. <laughs> so thank you both. Let's talk about your reporting from this week. Colin, uh, let's start with you. The cash fire broke out in Lower Lake in a neighborhood about a week ago Wednesday. And since then, you've written a number of stories about its impact and its aftermath. Bring us up to date. What's, uh, what has your coverage been of the cash fire? Um, well, you know, initially it, you know, was, um, you know, what you would expect, you know, just responding to the fire when it first began. Um, and, you know, given, you know, how bad it got, it wasn't going to be a one day story. So, you know, the first day we focused on, you know, what was happening the day of. And then the, on day number two, there were a lot of questions that had to be answered. Everything from the cause to what was happening to, to the residents. Um, so the first two days were pretty, you know, general, if you will, um, you know, just trying to, you know, explain what was going on and, you know, what we were seeing. But what we really wanted to get was, you know, the reaction or the impact to the homeowners, because obviously right away, a lot of people lost their homes. Um, and ideally, we would have had that story on day one, but because of the road closure, you know, we couldn't really get to it. And the fire was on Wednesday and they didn't open the road until like Sunday night. 
So the third story, um, you know, that was when we finally got to go up there and we finally got to talk to the people who lost their homes. And that was sort of a, that turned into sort of a, you know, a profile, profile piece, I guess. And that story, which I felt was the strongest, that, that had a lot of different, you know, nuggets. You know, we talked to multiple people about the homes they lost, uh, the experience they had. Um, you know, we, you know, I talked to one woman who, um, she owned the home. She got it from her mom who died last year. Her mom got it from her parents who died several years ago. So it was a, a multi-generation owned property. Um, and then we'll just, uh, talk to him. And then I talked to uh, another family. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you recall the Hidden Valley fire from like two weeks ago. You know, their oh, home, yes. they evacuated mm-hmm. from that and they brought their, um, fa- you know, their ancestors' ashes to their homes in uh, Clear Lake thinking, oh, they'll be safe there only for them to be hit by another fire and they lost their family's ashes. Oh my they God. lost their home. Um, so, so that was story number three. And then I went up again this week for one more story and, you know, it's going to focus more on, you know, just, you know, how we uh, escaped without any, you know, fatalities. So I won't get right. too much into that yet. Right. Um, but yeah, so that, that's where I'm at now. Uh, right. Whether I, I'll have any more stories, I'm not sure. Uh huh. Well, but still, um, we've had a lot of fires in the region this year already. I mean, it's kind of a daily or other every other day kind of occurrence. But the cash fire was really from the second it ignited, it was something different. It was the most kind of catastrophic fire in terms of loss of property, uh, damage to homes and lost homes. Uh, and so the follow up reporting, I think, is so important that you are finding out these stories about the people who whose lives were upended by this do you have anything um about what's next for people what kind of support people are getting and how people are uh finding the resources they need um yeah and you know yes and no i mean there are a few uh i have like a rough idea but there are other questions that need to be answered um i know the city of clear lake they've set up a uh um you know a center at the community center for people to go get you know assistance and to learn you know, where they can get help. Um, I know that there's been some assistance that's helping people stay in motels through early September. Um, but beyond that, um, you know, there, there's still some specifics that need to be identified. Um, people are not clear on where they're going to be beyond early September. So it, it, it's not really you know, resolved. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are a lot of people concerned about where they're going to end up. And, you know, but at, at the same time, there are a lot of people who they've got friends and family, loved ones, you know, while not an ideal situation, you, you've got some people who are really concerned. You've got others who are, who are a little bit more comfortable right now. So it, it's across the board right now. But, but yeah, there are a lot of things we need to look into about the long-term assistance. Any word about the cause of the fire? Um, I've been trying to get that all week. Um, last I heard, and I'm, and by that I mean like four days ago, it's been under investigation. Um, but 
Um, I've been playing phone tag with the uh, fire chief this week, and I'm trying to nail that down. Mm-hmm. In the second half of the show today at 930, I'm going to talk with a fire scientist about uh, fire treatments out in the woods, out in the forest to, to try to uh, and the relative effectiveness or not of, of thinning and, and that kind of stuff. But this was an an urban it was in a community it was in an urban neighborhood right do you have any idea why it spread so quickly from from mobile home to mobile home or from house to house it's actually kind of a you know people will ask me was it in the rural or urban area and i kind of tell them it's kind of in in between like it was so it was in the southern area of clear lake uh right along cash creek like the literal creek that borders city limit and the county territory and so like there were homes and what have you but you know other than the main road dam road which was paved goes east to west it was really like kind of a rural area um there were homes scattered there were dirt roads lots of trees um and you know but yet the uh, mobile home parks there were two of them they were like a cluster like like north of dam road there were scattered homes um on a wooded hillside but then on the southern end of dam road there were two mobile home parks that were just clusters of buildings um and you know obviously the firefighters they have a better way of explaining behavior but on the surface you look at it and you know you have on the north side of dam road you have the right amount of vegetation trees you know to like feed the fire and then once it gets to dam road just like i said a cluster of mobile homes you know to just for the fire to engulf Mm -hmm. um but yeah it it was sort of in an area kind of separated from clear lake proper and it was just like just a little an area in and of itself and that's what makes the fire stand out like it's not this huge wooded area that caught fire it's not you know downtown that caught fire it was only an 83 acre fire which isn't that huge but yet that 83 acres just happened to have enough homes to destroy mm-hmm. um so i think i may have forgotten your question but i'm just trying kind of explaining like the environment that happened. Yeah, yeah, no, you you answered my question for sure. Um, That's Colin Atagi. He is the breaking news reporter for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. Also live in the studio is Justine Fredrickson, who's the staff reporter for the Ukiah Daily Journal. Justine, tell us about what you've been reporting on this week. I I hear things are not going well in Ukiah's hospital. No, and I've been talking lately with Dr. Drew Colfax, who seems to be at the hospital just about every night. He's been doing overnights there. It's getting really bad. I talked to him yesterday. He was, everyone's still kind of shooken about how young the people are who now who are dying from COVID-19. It seems to be really shocking to me. There's been two just this week who are under 50 and then a 52-year-old. And yeah, he said there was a 43-year-old that died at the hospital last night. And I think he's just so seeped in COVID that, you know, when he called me, he said, hey, how's it going? Got COVID? You know, it's like his, now that's his standard hello. You know, I think it's just like, 
it sort of surprised me at first, and then I thought well, maybe it's just his way of reminding us all that you know it's it's just everywhere, and mm-hmm. eventually, like you said, eventually we're all just gonna get it. So, did I say that? <laughs> 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 oh my goodness! Well, uh, it's a, probably a pretty good reason to run out and get your vaccination if right, you haven't totally gotten it. These stories are hair-raising for sure, and there's Dr. <clears throat> Colfax right in the middle of the worst of it. Yeah, he's, and I think he said that you know that 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 striking fear into people doesn't seem to be working. He said now they're trying the tactic of just appealing to people's better natures and saying, hey, you know, please, please help us. Please help the hospital, help your community, you know, do it for your kids. You know, your kids can't mm-hmm. get vaccinated. So did you go over to the hospital? That's one thing I have not. I've all done all of my COVID reporting from the safety. Yeah, the no, studio. We, ta- we talked about that. Yeah, no, but that wasn't that wasn't part of the plan. OK, so. um what do you notice about this latest round? You've been covering, how long have you been working at the Ukiah Daily Journal? So I have been working for the journal as long as I've lived in Ukiah. <laughs> I moved here in, in 2010, and I think the same week I moved here, I interviewed and got the job. Oh, am I too close? Get a little closer. Oh, okay. There you go. Sorry. Yeah, so I moved here in 2010, and I, I interviewed that same darn week and i think i've yeah so i've been working <laughs> at the paper since i've so about here. 11 years now yep um yeah. and uh, both of you are covering sto- like I've, i have this feeling from listening to the news this morning on on kzyx that it's just there's just a lot of bad news you know it's like it's kind of overwhelming and, oh the drought yeah. yeah and Colin, your story this morning about you know a, a fa- traffic fatality it's just like in the in the press democrat you know it's just in the in the fires and the overflowing hospital beds and the deaths from covid we've had one a day you know it's four days yeah do have we had one today yet i didn't oh gosh i haven't i haven't heard um but public health is keeping very busy too sending out you know press announcements about each of of the community members that we've lost it's just like a hard time to be anyone but being a reporter especially oh yeah oh yeah i don't know how do you deal deal with it colin (laughs) Um, I, I mean, I've been at it for like more than a decade and I felt like I've learned to just kind of cope with it. Um, I mean, it get, does get hard when, you know, you need to approach the victims, the loved ones. But, you know, at the same time, you know, there's so much going on. Sometimes it's really like covering breaking news. It is a really fast paced environment and it does kind of get hard to actually stand there and you know, let your brain sink in about how bad things are Mm -hmm. because you're constantly on the move. Um, And then eventually you just kind of, you know, just learn to, you know, handle it. And in fact, uh, yesterday when I was at the um, Creekside Mobile Home Park, I was talking to a woman who lost her home and she told me how she felt really bad for me that I keep coming back and I keep seeing all the destruction. And I'm thinking, so a woman who lost her home in the fire says she feels bad for me. Um, and I really wanted to assure her I'm fine. I deal with this a lot. Um, but I think we can all agree that, you know, we need to learn how to deal with it. You know, we wouldn't be able to cover these tragedies if, you know, we couldn't handle it, you know, 
mentally and in some cases physically. Like I said, you're, there's a lot of running around. Um, there are a lot of times where I've found myself walking through the most random, you know, areas where, you know, I'm lucky that I haven't broken a bone here or there. Um, although there have been times where I have gotten hurt. Um, but, but yeah, but you just have to be willing to, you know, go down that path, you know, and, you know, you can't just be, you, you know, you have to be ready to wake up every day knowing that, you know, by the time you go to bed that night, you're going to tell yourself, what did I do this day? How did I end up there? And, you know, you just have to be prepared for the unexpected. Well, Justine, what about you? Do you find yourself kind of wondering throughout the day? I mean, Ukiah, um, the thing that I find fascinating about reporting in Ukiah is that things all, everything has 50 years of backstory, (laughs) right? And so you you think you're just covering a city council meeting, but actually you pull on the thread and it unravels this, you know, long assorted history of Ukiah backroom politics and, you know, oh, good old boy (laughs) connections and things. And so what's that like for you in terms of the the personal risk? Or is it just sort of a, um, you know, you're astounded at the things that you find out? No, yeah, I mean, when you first when you first get here and and find people interesting, you know, and you quote them and then 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 there's 10 people that want to tell you, "Oh, well, that, you know, that that's the the rest of the the history of that person." So that's, you know, one of the interesting things about covering a small town, but it's also fascinating. I just love I love personalities. I I love the, you know, the the tiny little things that people get passionate about and and Ukiah and Mendocino County is just particularly great for that. I mean, there's so many, I'm sure you've learned there's so many interesting, you know, people and they're they're so engaged and they're so opinionated and they're so they're so willing to share their opinions and they you know, and they're really smart and they they all read the paper which you know, at times is I'm you know, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying it's true because you hear about it. You know, that they talk to you about it, and right there's you know. a hunger to know what's going on around here, and there's right. a lot going on. Um, right. So let's talk about some other some other stories that you guys are following. Some other priorities that you have pinned. Um, what what's what are you looking at, Justine? Yeah. So one of the things I I did want to talk about was this little infamous plaque that we had downtown <laughs> on on Church Street called the you know the ladies of the night and it was it was briefly removed i think because some people were unhappy about it because you know it does refer to prostitution and i've I've now learned great thanks to the historical society of mendocino county and Alyssa ballard you know she found out that there used to be a brothel there on on church street a irene's place and that's why the plaque was there i've always i've always wondered about that plaque but some people were disturbed by it and it left but then the city after they completed their streetscape project they brought the plaque back and now they've put it on the corner of church and state street and the, even the the rock was saved so the plaque and its original rock is there still for everyone to enjoy you know and the deputy city manager shannon riley said that you know they wanted to preserve the the city's history and and put it back so i was very but i still want to know why apparently it's Ted Feibush. He put the plaque up in the 1970s, I guess, because he found out about the history and that the brothel 
was there, even though the building is now gone. I, you know, I want to know why he felt compelled to put that plaque there. And, uh, but of course he's not around and the people that I've talked to that knew him, they don't really know why he wanted to put the plaque there. So I was just really hoping to talk about it and hoping there might still be somebody around who, you know, remembers why it was important to him to put it there. So, so anybody listening, if, right, you, exactly. if you've got any intel on the, the Ladies of the Night plaque from downtown Ukiah, um, Justine, how can people give you so, tips? So my email is on every, you know, every story that's in the paper. So you can just click on that and, and email me. It's the best way. Great. And and Colin, what about you? Um, I guess every day is a, is a new story for you in terms of breaking news. But what, what are your priorities this in the coming weeks? Um, well, you know, especially in uh, light of what happened last week, uh, we're really trying to figure out the fire situation. I mean, obviously, everyone knows the fire situation up here is it's bad. Um, but for me specifically, I'm like, being, you know, having only been here for three months, I'm trying to do my homework on the history of the fires. Um, back in um, at my previous job, um, you know, I did a, a similar thing. I was the breaking news reporter, and we covered multiple major fires down there. You were and in Palm while, Springs, is that right? Yes, yes. And, um, you know, we, you know, and even while covering our own fires, you know, I would write a long story and then in the very middle, you know, put a paragraph saying, meanwhile, in Northern California, you know, the Tubbs fire is happening, the Kincaid fire. And at the time, like all these fires are like, you know, I know they're happening, but it wasn't until I got here where I actually talked to people who actually, you know, explained to me like how bad they were. Um, and then in covering the uh, cash fire last week, that got the ball rolling in learning about the Valley Fire, um, you know, which, you know, happened in 2015, not far from there. You know, and then I started hearing about the Jerusalem Fire, the Rocky Fire, started hearing about uh, Lake County's history. Um, and so, you know, I'm trying to, like, just, you know, really understand, you know, all these fires I heard about in Palm Springs, you know, just what they actually did. You know, back then I heard, oh, Tubbs Fire, it destroyed so many thousand acres. Now I'm hearing, oh, it destroyed that building there, that building there. Uh, my colleague, uh, Kent Porter, who you know, um, you know, my first week he took me on a tour of the Tubbs Fire uh, burn area. And, you know, that week he told me, oh, this is ground zero. You might not, not want to live here. <laughs> I ended up right. getting an apartment no. in the main area where that got hit hardest. I guess so, the rent might be a little cheaper there. Yeah, yeah no, it, it was I actually got a good deal, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> the only housing yeah. available. <laughs> the only, yeah. Sorry, this is not funny. I'm sorry, Colin. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. Um, um, but yeah, so, um, you know, and, you know, for all the coverage I'm trying to do, you know, of for any story I've done on the on a fire, whether it's this one or any other fire, um, you know, I'm being told, like, oh, like given context, like I'm being told, hey, don't just take this fire at face value. You know, you need to kind of explain this fire is happening in an area that was burned five years ago, and you know how, 
you know, all the vegetation grew back, you know, people can be hit again. And, you know, so that, that's going to be the trend moving forward. And I need to really explain, you know, where it's happening and why it's significant. Um, so in the short, you know, in short, that's one thing I'm working on. But at the same time, being a new reporter, I'm trying to learn all of Sonoma County and the North Bay. Um, and I'm trying to identify other areas that I kind of want to start covering that I feel like hasn't got as much attention from, you know, over, over time. Um, I've tried to have, um, like, you know, I talked to my boss about covering Bodega Bay a little bit more. Um, I'm, I'm, I have a soft spot for the coast. You know, I love being by the ocean, you know, not just in Northern California, but just, I, I love being near water. And, you know, I went to Bodega Bay one day and I loved it. And, you know, now I'm trying to like build contacts there mm -hmm. and to make sure that, you know, I can kind of have a finger and you know, have a pulse on that area. Mm -hmm. um, and then back at my old job, I covered traffic issues a lot and I'm trying to like maybe do that here as well. Like, you know, trying to, you know, do coverage about what Caltrans is up to and, you know, where some other road projects are going on. So th th those are things I would like to do, but otherwise, like you said, you know, every day is different and, you know, I need to be ready to jump on whatever life throws my way. And keep yourself safe and your bones not broken the whole the whole time you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, um, you know, I'll tell you, um, one time covering a fire many years ago, I got bit by a dog and I want to make sure that doesn't happen again. So, <laughs> the world's a yeah, dangerous I mean, place out there. Well, and it's yeah, I, I, I got a lot of stories are... I could tell you, but... <laughs> Fires are stressful for dogs, too, right. I guess. Yeah. And all the oh, wildlife yeah. out there. Well, I want to thank you both for being on Byline Mendocino this morning. It's been great to meet and talk with you both. Colin Atagi is the breaking news reporter for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat. And Justine Fredrickson is the staff reporter for the Ukiah Daily Journal. Thank you both. Thank you. Much appreciated. Up next, I'll talk with wildfire scientist Chad Hansen, author of the new book, Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. Stay tuned. I just got good news. I just got good news. the press, it's hitting the streets with my delivery. It makes a scene quick on the daily And all of the people gather around this day like I'm a street preacher out of my mind And I'm going all out, I tend to overcommit But with news this good, you'll wanna hear it This is Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. Forests, fires, and logging are local stories that have been on the front pages and top of mind for local journalists in this area for, well, as long as there have been local journalists. Over the past few months, I have featured a number of guests to explore these issues in depth, now made ever more urgent by climate change. 
There's a general understanding that our forests are overgrown, dense with down logs and stands of young conifers from a century of wildfire suppression, and that efforts to thin and remove this tinder and create fire breaks near towns are essential to protecting our communities from catastrophic destruction. My next guest has a very different take on our wildfire predicament. He is Chad T. Hansen, and for decades he's been studying fires and their aftermath in the forests of the Sierra Nevada. He's the director of the John Muir Institute of Earth Island Institute, and his new book is called Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. Chad is asking us to rethink our relationship with fire in order to better protect our human communities and also the climate. All right. Well, Chad, what do we get wrong about wildfire? <laughs> well, it, it's a significant list, as you will certainly learn reading my book, Smokescreen. Um, there's a broad perception out there in society and among policymakers and a lot of environmental journalists as well. It's an innocent perception. I used to have this perception myself before I started researching this issue. And I talk about this in, in Smokescreen which is that fire destroys forests. That's that's a broad perception, you know, or, or, or well, maybe fire doesn't destroy forests if it burns at low intensity, you know, if it's a prescribed burn and it's only low intensity or, or if it's uh, just a really, really mild fire weather and the fire only creeps along and that's a good, that's a, you know, that's okay. You know, people feel comfortable with that and, and there's nothing wrong with the low intensity burn. Um, there's, that's part of the mix. The problem is, is that when people think, if that is good, therefore, a fire that burns hotter in a certain patch, that must therefore be bad. And that's, I think, where we go wrong. And the fact is, they're both good. They're both good. They're both important ecologically. Um, fire in our forests is a natural process that's got 350 million years of evolution behind it. And so you have, this is deep evolutionary history. You have entire plant and animal communities that have evolved to depend on post-fire habitat. And interestingly, a surprisingly large amount, a, su a surprisingly large proportion of them have evolved to depend on patches that burn hot where fire kills most or all the trees uh, and what I call snag forest habitat. It turns out that's some of the very best uh, and most ecologically rich wildlife habitat out there in the forest, so long as it's left to natural succession and natural processes after fire, and so long as it's not subjected to the damage of post-fire logging. Okay, so what you're saying and what we need to wrap our heads around here is that even in these high intensity areas, uh, like in patches of the August complex, for instance, those areas that burned and seemingly burned so much that the trees were killed, that is still valuable habitat. Yeah. Yeah, not only is it valuable, it's some of the most valuable habitat. And what's interesting is, is that, um, and again, you know, not all species like that. You know, some, some species really like low and moderate intensity fire. Um, and um, and so you, that's why you want that mix. You don't want it to all burn at high intensity. You don't even want it to mostly burn at high intensity, which it doesn't, by the way. You know, no matter how big a fire gets, August complex is no exception. Um, it's mostly low and moderate intensity. Um and uh, where the mature trees survive, and even you know many or most of the small trees in many cases. But you're going to get patches that do burn hot, and sometimes it's 10% of a fire, sometimes it's 20% or 25%. But um, I think when that happens, it's really easy to look at those areas right after the fire and see those, those charred fire-killed trees and see that, that bed of ash on the ground. 
And you, and people think, oh my God, that's just going to stay that way forever. You know, that's, that's what people have in their minds. I mean, I've talked to so many people about this and they don't realize that in the first spring after the fire, here come the wildflowers. Here come all the new shoots of, of shrubs and, and all the, um, the, the, the oaks and, um, and the conifer seedlings of all the different species. And every year there's more and more, and it grows richer and taller. Um, and the snags have got all the woodpeckers and the woodboring beetles, and they're creating cavities every year. And you've got bluebirds and nuthatches and flying squirrels and, and all the shrub nesting species and the understory and all these wonderful native flowering uh, shrubs and, and, and wildflowers that, that are germinate, their germination is stimulated by intense fire in particular. And all the, the, the flying insects that are attracted to the flowers and all the fly catching birds and bats that are eating the flying insects and the small mammals that are, that are uh, you know, living in the down logs and the shrub patches and all the shrub nesting birds. And you know, this is such a rich, colorful, um, cacophonous ecosystem. I mean, you go into these areas in the spring, in the middle of bird nesting season, Oh my God. I mean, you know, there's, there's tons of life in an old growth forest. Don't get me wrong. Right. But I mean, you really want to see a show in terms of wildlife. You go to the snag forest in May and June. Well, and one of my questions for you about this is, is it very hopeful? The whole idea of, you know, I have friends, dear friends who are in despair over what has happened in the landscape yeah. over the last several years here in the county. Um, feeling like we've just lost so many acres we've lost so many beloved places and so it is hopeful to think about the role of burned forest even fire killed trees that are still standing as thriving ecosystems and and particularly rare ecosystems in the century of suppression and then the as you say the salvage logging that tends to happen but my question for you is about how climate changes this equation if it does you talked about 350 million years of evolution based on high intensity fires being in this ecosystem but is climate causing more high-intensity fire, what can we expect from fire behavior in this age of climate change, which is clearly upon us? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question. So forest fires are driven mostly by weather and climate. And so climate change is a substantial influence. There's no question about that. You know, as temperatures go up, and especially, you know, if drought cycles continue to be exacerbated um, by a changing climate, because of human activities, um, we are going to have more fire. And, and we've already seen more fire than we had in, 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 de- in recent decades. What most people don't realize is that even as fire is increasing, which it is, and climate change is a significant factor there, we still have less now than we had naturally before fire suppression. So I think that's important to keep in mind. That's not the thing that people should be concerned about. What we need to be concerned about are two key things. Number one, rising temperatures from climate change. Because as temperatures go up, it can stress ecosystems, especially at the lower elevation, you know, edge of forests, um, where forest gives way to chaparral or grassland or woodland. Um, at those ecotones, um, forest is, is vulnerable. And it's not vulnerable to fire. Fire, if anything, is conferring increased or additional resilience to the ecosystem in the face of climate change. But Rising temperatures are stressing those ecosystems, and at some point, um, a, a number of areas, it's just simply not going to be habitable for that particular ecosystem type if temperatures keep going up. Now, 
what's so important about about this is that we have to understand is that logging is a key factor in making climate change worse. And when logging happens, most of the carbon in a tree that's removed from the forest ends up in the atmosphere almost immediately. People think, well, you know, a tree gets removed, but then we'll store the carbon in a two by four or in a home somewhere. That's not what happens. Only a very small portion of the carbon, um, oftentimes one fifth, uh, maybe one third at most, of the carbon ends up somewhere in a structure. Most of the carbon en ends up in the atmosphere almost immediately because it's incinerated. The slash debris is incinerated on site or in a biomass facility. The uh, mill residue and the bark are incinerated at the lumber mill as hog fuel, as biomass for energy. People don't realize that logging in the 21st century is mostly about dirty fuel. That's what mostly, most of the carbon in trees that are logged ends up being used for dirty fuel. That's what's happening. And it's worse than coal. When you incinerate wood for energy, it produces even more CO2 than burning coal for equal energy produced. So it's, it's, we need to start moving away from this from a climate change perspective. We need to start increasing forest protections, start reducing our wood consumption, um, building smaller houses, using non-wood alternatives, using recycled materials. We need to start shifting. But once we start doing that, we will start drawing down atmospheric carbon. And it's really, really key to understand that if we do that, Atmospheric carbon will come down, which means temperatures will stop going up, and eventually they'll start coming down. And um, and that will have a, 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 an influence, a positive influence on all kinds of things. Well, I think, too, when you're talking about misconceptions, I feel so lucky to get to actually talk with you because there's just so much in your book that uh, is new to me as somebody who's been in the forest for a long time and been working around these issues and, and is, you know, try to be knowledgeable about it. Um We've all been advocating for thinning and prescribed burning and uh, shaded fire breaks and, and any forest treatment to reduce the fuels that have built up over the century of fire suppression. We figured everything out about these issues. You know, we haven't. There's still lots to discover. But on certain broad themes, we've got it pretty well nailed down. And the weight of scientific evidence is pretty clear. This is one of them. So first thing to understand is that um, there were a lot of really, really well-intentioned beliefs about things like thinning. Um, for years. A lot of really good people um, really embraced this as, as, a, as a path forward um, because of a lot of the assumptions that we had about fire in our forests. And so thinning made a lot of sense to people. The assumptions, the two key assumptions, one was when fire occurs um, in places that burn hot, uh, that uh, a large portion of the tree carbon is consumed and ends up in the atmosphere. And that thinning can somehow maintain more of the carbon in the forest. That was the narrative. Now, what we've come to understand since then from field-based studies, and there's just no question about this, is that uh, only a tiny percentage of the tree carbon is actually consumed in a fire, even a really big one, even in a crown fire patch. On average, only about one or 2% of the tree carbon is consumed, even in a really big, intense fire. It's a tiny, tiny percentage. And, um, and that's recouped very quickly by post-fire regrowth, which is uh, pretty rapid uh, with all the vegetation naturally growing in, including trees, um, because of all the nutrients cycling from the fire. So that's one thing that we didn't understand. And once we understood that, we realized, oh, my God, you know, these thinning operations are oftentimes removing 30, 40, 50 percent of the carbon in the trees from the forest. And now we understand most of that goes into the atmosphere almost immediately. 
what this means is literally 97, 98% of the wood that's being removed from the forest in the typical thinning project that's being done ostensibly as fuel reduction, literally 97, 98% of that is non-combustible in a forest fire. It can't burn. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's simply, you know, it, it's, it's too large. You know, if trees don't get, uh, they don't get incinerated in the forest unless they're really, really tiny seedlings or very small saplings, um, twigs, pine needles. Yeah, that can get in, consumed and incinerated, but, but otherwise it doesn't. And, you know, you're seeing trees, not just 16 inches in diameter or 24 inches in diameter. In the typical thinning project these days, it's often 28 32 inches in diameter. We have logging projects in the for, in the Sierra Nevada National Forest that are increasingly going to 40 inches in diameter um, as, as so-called fuel reduction. They're calling this thinning. A tree that's 40 inches in diameter, these are old growth trees. These are trees that are 10 feet in circumference. Um, and uh, so the public has no idea what's being packaged and sold to them as thinning these days. And so so it's not it's not fuel reduction because the vast majority of what's being re- removed is literally not fuel. And the second thing that we've we've come to understand is it's actually you know re- thinning is making climate change a lot worse because there's far more carbon emitted from thinning than there is from wildfire alone. That's what the science is telling us. But the other thing that's emerging is that it's not stopping forest fires, and in fact the fires are often burning more intensely through these thinned areas. Now, not always, you know, fires are highly variable and there's always going to be a few areas that, you know, that in any big fire that were thinned and burned at low intensity, where there's an unthinned area somewhere not too far away that burned at high intensity. And, you know, the Forest Service takes people, community groups and, and reporters and policymakers over and over and over again to those same areas in every large fire, every fire season. And we get news stories saying, look how effective thinning is. And it's only when we actually look at all the data, instead of, you know, cherry picking like Forest Service does, when we look at all the data across these big fires and we say, oh, my God, look at this. You know, um, yes, there are numerous thin dairies that burned at low intensity, but more commonly, these thin dairies are burning at moderate and high intensity. More commonly, they're burning more intensely than unthinned forests. Now, how is that possible? You know, we've been told that the forests are overgrown. They're too dense. How can that be? Um, and that's a key thing I explore in, in the book Smokescreen, all the science behind it. What we're seeing in study after study after study is that forests that have a higher density, mature forests that have that are more dense, whether it's because they haven't burned in a century or because they just have a lot of biomass and a lot of a lot of carbon in them, um, those forests tend to burn at lower intensities when fires occur most of the time. Now, why is that? Um, you would think, well, you know, it's obvious, right? They've got more fuel, there's more trees, there's more biomass, there must be more fuel to burn. Well, in a sense, that's true. What's also true is there are countervailing factors. A denser forest that has more biomass, a mature forest, has higher canopy cover. And higher canopy cover means more cooling shade. And more cooling shade means that everything on the forest floor stays more moist in fire season, stays more shaded in fire season. And in fact, um, uh, in forests that have very high canopy cover, there's so little sunlight reaching the forest floor that the more combustible understory vegetation uh, dies back as the forest is getting older and denser. And um, the shrubs and the small trees and the grasses, they die back because they need high levels of sunlight. And um, the, the, the limbs on the, the lower branches on the mature trees, they, they die back, the trees self prune. Um, you see this over and over and over again in, in, in dense old forests. So you have a lot of biomass, yes, but on the other hand, um, 
the forest is adjusting in various ways that are not always conducive to, you know, a, a, the spread of fire. Now, certainly those areas will burn. And if the conditions are hot, dry and windy enough, it can burn in, those areas can burn intensely. But on average, most of the time, they tend to burn at lower intensity than forests that are more open and less dense because uh, an open forest has more sunlight. It's got more of the dry grasses there and the shrubs and the, and the small trees because they get that sunlight and they can grow more in the understory. And um, uh, they don't have as much of a windbreak effect against the gusts of wind that drive the flames, whereas a dense forest acts like a windbreak. Okay, and so let's let's do talk about forests uh, in the condition of much of like much of Mendocino County, which has been ruthlessly, relentlessly logged for 150 years now. And a lot of our forest is in that state that you might describe as plantation. It's regrowth, some of its third growth and even more uh, small trees packed together. What do you say about a fire? moving through there is thinning not a good option there either no i mean we really need to keep the carbon in our forests um in, including in plantation so just give, let me give you an example so in 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 that in this region uh your region uh, where where you are um uh there was a study done in 2004 um called odian et al 2004 and they looked at uh, a bunch of different fires over the course of time and what they found is that Forests overall, mature forests, had about 12% high severity fire on average. Plantations had on average 16% high severity fire. And that difference was statistically significant. It is a significant difference. In some regions, it might be, you know, the gap might be a little bit bigger. But point is, plantations do burn more severely than, than mature forests. But they still burn mostly at low and moderate intensity most of the time. And so... What thinning is doing in, in plantations is simply killing and removing most of the trees, putting most of that carbon into the atmosphere. It's not stopping fires. Typically, the fires are often burning more intensely through the plantations after the thinning. And I guess what I would say to people is just let those let those plantations accumulate more carbon and let them let let nature rewild those areas because one thing we know about plantations is if is if we just let nature restore those areas through benign or benevolent neglect, nature will forge those areas back into structurally diverse and species diverse, rich ecosystems over time, if we just leave them alone. All right, well, let's get into some of the more insidious parts of why we can't just leave them alone, right? Because the forces driving commercial logging are using all of this conversation that we're having about people's fear of high intensity fire about the climate changes that we are experiencing about the current what we think of as catastrophic fires that we are living through these days in order to yeah. drive an agenda of pulling out more commercial timber products and so while we are talking about thinning and fire and fire breaks what that conversation is being used to do is approve more and more commercial logging is that right but that's exactly right. And, and here's here's what, what's really insidious. Um, and I think that's a good word. It fits in this circumstance is that a lot of this is being done based on the narrative that somehow it's going to stop fire or curb fire to the point it'll burn so low intensity that the fire suppression forces can just put it out and that it'll save towns. It'll stop the fire from reaching the towns. That's the narrative out there that's being used to push these logging projects and to double down on logging and thinning out in the forest. Uh, or logging including thinning which is logging here's the problem is that 
It's not stopping fires. Oftentimes the fires are burning more rapidly and more intensely through these thinned areas where these logging projects have occurred. Through post-fire logged areas, it's burning, the fires are burning more rapidly, more intensely. Um, and these are logging projects that are done under the guise of fuel reduction. They're burning more rapidly through these post-fire logged and thinning areas, and they're reaching the towns oftentimes faster than they otherwise would have. And we're seeing one town after another burn because of that narrative, because the resources are being spent by politicians who are getting funded by the logging industry, many Republicans, but oftentimes a lot of Democrats too, um, including some of the progressives. Um, and uh, they're pushing this narrative, and we're seeing town after town burn when it's almost entirely preventable. If we just shift away from the backcountry logging and shift towards community protection. And we have seen this this month with Greenville, right? Can you talk about what happened, yeah. what's happening with the Dixie Fire and what kind of situation Greenville was in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we saw it in 2018 in November uh, with the campfire in the town of Paradise. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, we had those hot, dry, windy conditions and that climate signal. Um, the fire was going to reach Paradise because that's the way the wind was blowing. But it got there very, very fast, much faster than it probably otherwise would have because thousands of acres have been logged under the guise of fuel reduction in the previous years, post-fire logging and commercial thinning on both private lands and on national forest lands. And we saw the same thing in the Dixie Fire in recent days, um, where there were tens of thousands of acres of commercial thinning that were done on national forest lands, uh, on the ridges and the hills, you know, ostensibly as fuel breaks all around the, the, the towns uh, in, in that area. And... Um, and the Dixie Fire was driven by hot, dry, windy conditions, as they all are. Uh, it just uh, blew right through many, many thousands of acres that had just been commercially thin just a couple of few years earlier. And it burned down the town of Greenville, a town that I that I know pretty well, uh, where I used to stay when I did my doctoral dissertation research, um, doing research in fire areas in the northern Sierra Nevada. Um, I used to eat my breakfast in the diner across the street from the old hotel in the morning, and that's gone now. Um, the only thing that actually keeps towns safe, which is defensible space pruning within 100 feet of homes. Beyond 100 feet of homes, there's no additional benefit uh, to home protection from any vegetation management. It's only about what happens within 100 feet of homes, usually 60 feet or less. And home hardening, which is ember-proof vents um, on exterior vents, uh, rain gutter guards, and, uh, and you know, get sweeping dry pine needles and leaves off the roof every fire season. I mean, just simple things like that. That's what keeps homes safe. It's the only thing that works. And because of this narrative that, that, is, that is telling towns that the logging projects out there in the forests, distant from the towns, that that's somehow going to save them, um, that narrative is putting people at risk every single fire season. And Greenville is just one example. I mean, just days later, we lost Grizzly Flats. Um, it's mostly gone now, another little town mm -hmm. in the central Sierra Nevada. Um, and now, um, as we speak, literally as we speak, another one, Alta Sierra in the southern Sierra Nevada, um, uh, may, may be gone. I mean, the fire is right on the, it's surrounded the town now. Um, uh, Grizzly Flats, by the way, the Caldor fire just, just swept right through a large, two large commercial thinning areas that were done uh, in recent years by the Forest Service. We told the Forest Service it will not protect the, the town. We asked them, please don't do it. It's probably going to put the town at greater risk. And that's where the fire burned through very rapidly. And now most of Grizzly Flats is gone. And uh, a big thinning project that we opposed on Sequoia National Forest in the southern Sierra Nevada, the French fire burned right through that and now is right on the edge of Alta Sierra, um, is actually burned part of the town already. And so, you know, again, you know, this is something that we can prevent. We, we know that if we do this, we focus on homes instead of the logging out in the backcountry, 
that the vast majority of homes and businesses will survive. We know that we can get people and their animals out safely, but we have to focus our attention and resources there. Otherwise, it simply won't happen. Right. And we've got so many fire survivors in this community who have lost not only homes, but family members. And so the idea that the focus really needs to be on protecting people and homes and and let the forest Absolutely. grow, focus on the true devastation of these fires, which is the loss that people suffer from, you know, homes and that's and exactly members. it. That's exactly it. That's that's the real catastrophe. So if, if, if a wildfire is catastrophic, it's 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 because it burns homes or 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 someone gets hurt or, or they lose their lives. That's always catastrophic, but it's not catastrophic in terms of what it's doing out in the forest ecologically. Mm-hmm. So uh, this whole program that uh, Governor Newsom is pushing um, of uh, thinning for his fuel breaks and removing trees and destroying chaparral in lower elevations ostensibly to to protect communities. Um, That's not working. The fires burn right through those areas, oftentimes faster and more intensely. They spot over them with embers driven by the winds. Um, And all the removal of dead trees that Governor Newsom is pushing and also, unfortunately, uh, President Biden right now, um, it, it's it's not curbing fires. It's just going to tend to make them burn hotter and faster. We've seen that in, in numerous studies, uh, these areas where post-fire logging occurs or other types of what they call salvage logging, removing dead or, or dying trees. Um, those areas tend to burn hotter in fires. They don't tend to burn at lower intensity. So again, you know, if we can just enjoy nature for its wonderful richness and complexity, the lab trees, the dead trees, the the down logs, the shrubs, the wildflowers, the whole nine yards, um, and uh, we can let that we can let that carbon accumulate and let that carbon stay in the forest, live and dead. And it's good for the climate. It's good for biodiversity. And um, removing it is not a solution. Okay, where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Well, they can certainly visit the John Muir Projects uh, website, uh, www.johnmuirproject.org. And, uh, and uh, they can certainly learn a lot more about this issue by reading my book, Smokescreen, which is uh, the full title is Smokescreen, uh, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. And that's available on Amazon and also bookshop.com. Cool. Thanks, Chad. My pleasure. Thank you. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales, and my guest has been Chad Hansen, wildfire researcher and author of the book, Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forest and Climate. If your curiosity was piqued by that very different take on uh, our our fire reality right now, and you want to hear more from Chad Hansen, tune into the Ecology Hour on Tuesday, September 14th at 7. He'll talk more about his research with Bob Spies and Tim Bray. Thanks also to Colin Atagi and Justine Fredrickson for participating in our local media roundtable this morning. Stay tuned now for the wondrous world of music with Tony Mixak. I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Byline Mendocino. Thank you so much for listening. Let things grow. Waves on the face of the ocean. Waves in the
This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.